uh, I bring greetings from teachers. I was just there this morning and I've been called to do the double duty, double header preaching thing here. And uh, pray for me. I, I'm a retired pastor. I think my voice is a little out of shape. So uh, bear with me as I try to make it through uh, the two sermons this morning. Um, it was two weeks ago that I was with you, and I suggested that Psalms 1 and 2 were like those two great pillars that the divine architect designed to adorn the doorway of the temple in Jerusalem. You may remember the picture that was projected with that uh, image. And, and just as those magnificent pillars prepared worshipers to, to enter into the presence of God, so Psalms 1 and 2 provide a gateway, a divine preface into the great themes of the Psalms. Well, this morning, we're going to move to the end of the book of Psalms. We're going to see where the songs of Israel come to their culmination, exalting God with a resounding call to praise. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 145, and you've been sitting a while, so why don't you stand while I read this passage of Scripture, Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises, and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him. For all the wicked, he will destroy my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your law. Lord, open our hearts that we may offer you the praise that is your due. Do this, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to begin this exposition of Psalm 45 
by considering the central question raised by the book of Job. Now, Job, of course, is that most godly man who was originally blessed by God. But Satan, the great cynic, issued a challenge before God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Oh, Job is a, is a man of great riches. He's a man full of God's blessings. Satan says, Are you sure it's natural that Job would want to worship your God, but take all those good things away? Then you'll see what happens. Well, that's the question, isn't it? Is our devotion to God, is our worship of Him dependent upon the material blessings we receive from Him? Is He just some genie in a bottle existing to shower good things upon us? What happens when our healthy, secure, and comfortable life is turned upside down? What then? Is God still worthy of our worship? Do you fear God or not? If your God is not big enough, if your God is not glorious enough, if he's not good enough, if he's not worthy of your highest admiration and adoration, then you can guess what will happen when your nice, deep, congenial world comes crashing down around you. Why bother with God, you'll say? What good is it if this is how he treats me? Is God really worthy of your worship? I think he is. But we need the encouragement of his word and the scriptures to reinforce that conviction. And the book of Psalms is a key place to go for that encouragement. And this morning we consider perhaps the most significant theme in the entire book of Psalms is the theme of praise. Praise, you see, is the proper response to the glorious goodness and beauty of God. And the Psalms help us to believe that our God is worthy of worship no matter what. Praise permeates the psalm. It's the backdrop on which everything else appears. It refers like a refrain over and over again. But that praise of God comes to a climatic crescendo in the final two entries in this biblical songbook. So we look back at Psalm 145. And this psalm is described in its introductory superscript as a song of praise. And that song begins with these words, Psalm 145, verse 1, I will exalt you, my God, the King, I will praise your name forever and ever. Now this psalm, interestingly, has the poetic form of an acrostic, which means that each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are, there are a number of psalms that have this form. Now this was certainly an age of memorizing the psalm, but it also says, this psalm is about praise from A to Z. And with that central theme, this psalm actually introduces the last five psalms of the book of Psalms that follow Psalms 146 to 150. And each of them begins and ends with a call to praise using the Hebrew word hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is the Hebrew in the second person plural command to praise. And that hallelujah is followed by Yah, which is the shortened form of the name of God, Yahweh, translated as the Lord. So hallelujah means all of you, praise the Lord. And these five psalms at the conclusion of the Psalter are filled with this word, hallelujah. It's a biblical, it's a biblical equivalent of the handles hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's ultimately, you see, what the psalms are about. And that's ultimately what the Bible is about. 
And that's ultimately what our lives are meant to be about. The praise of God. Is he praised in the recognition that our God is worthy of our worship no matter what? So Psalm 145 teaches us about this thing called praise so that we can be engaged more meaningfully in this ultimate activity. So this morning, I want you to see that the praise of God is right. The praise of God is reasonable. The praise of God is a responsibility. And finally, that the praise of God ought to be a resounding pleasure to us. Now, to start, I want to consider a question that many people have in their heads, even if they never actually say it. And that is, why is the Lord so insistent that we praise Him? I mean, after all, many monsters demand that of other people, proclaim our goodness. I want you to speak about my wisdom, my strength. I mean, people would consider us egotistical, not too many. Commanding other people to praise you, that's just not profit. But God does it all the time. Why is that? Well, verse 3 of our passage points to the answer. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Or as some translations put it, greatly to be praised. C.S. Lewis, in his little book of the Psalms, has a helpful discussion on this question of why God wants us to praise Him. He says, think about what it means when we say that a painting is admirable. We don't mean that it is admired, though it may be, for a bad word of art can be admired by millions. Nor do we mean that it deserves admiration in the same way that a worker deserves his wages and will suffer an injustice if he doesn't get paid. So the sense in which a picture deserves or demands the admiration of those prices rather than that admiration is the correct, the adequate, the appropriate response to it. And that if made, admiration will not be thrown away. And, and that if we do not admire it, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We will have missed You know, people often say that beauty is simply in the eye of the beholder. In other words, considering something beautiful is just an individual judgment, an entirely subjective response. But I ask you, if that's true, why do we have national parks? No, no, some things are objectively beautiful. If you do not stand in awe at the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, or of the power of the Niagara Falls, there is simply something wrong with you. Those things by their very nature demand that we admire them. And not to be irreverent with the comparison, Lewis suggested God demands praise in a similar sense. To admire God, that is to praise Him, is simply to be awake to reality. For He is admirable, supreme in And not to praise God is like being tone deaf or being colorblind, or, or never having true friendship or love. It's to be, it's to live an incomplete and stunted life. God is worthy of our praise, and He demands it because He is the most admirable object imaginable. His greatness, no one can fathom the soul. Not to admire God and praise is to be blind to the reality of who He is, for He is me. Beautiful and all satisfying object. But there's more to it than that, Lewis suggests. God demands our praise not only because it is fitting and 
night, but also because in the process of VA worship, God draws near to his people and makes his presence known. You see, our praise of God puts us in the proper place before him. It humbles us. And God will only draw near to the humble. And so in that sense, there's a way in which God inhabits the praises of his people. In our praise of him, he makes himself known to us. And I'm not just paying this, there's never any suggestion in the Bible that God in any way needs our praise or worship. It's not like the, the vain man who's always craving words of affirmation and whose fragile ego, ego is shattered and routed. And perhaps you've had a conversation with a person who goes on and on and on with uh, talking and it's just, I'm sorry for talking about myself so much. What have you talked about so much? And, and politicians seem obsessed with this kind of praise and that's how they get elected after all. But God is not like that. He doesn't need our praise. No. There's nothing fragile about God's ego. I have no need of a bowl from your stall or goat from your pen. The Lord says in Psalm 15, if I were hungry, I would not have you, but the world is hungry. And everything in it. <laughs> and anyway, why would God ever look to us to gratify some need, some appetite for praise? Lowly creatures that we are, the majestic angelic hosts that could, uh, could perform that far better than we could. As Lewis writes, I don't want my dog to bark approval of my book. And the speaking of dogs, think of the dog we once had. Her name was Callie. Uh, big old black Bernese mountain dog. And, and I can remember Callie looking out toward the sunset and realizing, I am certain, she has absolutely no sense of the beauty of what she's looking at. That was beyond her capability as a dog. But you see, unlike dogs, we have an aesthetic sense by which we can find pleasure in beauty. And unlike dogs, we have a moral conscience by which we can discern goodness. And unlike dogs, we have a rational mind by which we can seek truth. It is in our nature as creatures, created in the very image of God, to appreciate and to admire beauty, goodness, and truth. And the God of the Bible All beauty, all truth. And one of that is the unlike dogs, we are personal creatures. We are able to engage in personal relationships that we are loved. And God Himself is the source of our personal nature, and He created us to know Him personally. You see, the point is this God has created us so that we can appreciate Him and know Him and enjoy Him and praise Him. And you see, it's in that appreciation that we demonstrate that we are more than dogs. It's in our praise of God that we realize our true nature as human beings created in His image. And our praise of God is an expression of, and it is a privilege of our human dignity. We, we have the joy of experiencing majestic beauty. We have the pleasure of seeing moral goodness. We have the satisfaction of discerning truth. And finally, we have the delight in knowing the personal love that God is all of this. Beauty, goodness, truth, love. To the highest degree, 
There is enlightenment to praising God because of who God is and because of how He has made us to appreciate who He is. And that makes any comparison to our demanding praise for ourselves entirely inappropriate. See, in our praise, we experience reality. We, in our praise, we come to experience God. So, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But that simple command doesn't stand alone. Hallelujah is not like some Hare Krishna mantra that chants endlessly in, as worshippers try to empty their minds of all conscious thoughts and work themselves up into some state of spiritual ecstasy. Now, when you read this song, you see that the call to praise God is accompanied by a list of reasons for giving praise. If he praises God, it's not only the right thing to do, it is also a reasonable thing to do. You see, the essence of biblical worship is a reasonable response to the revelation of God. Our, pro, our praise flows from the truth of who God is based on how he has made himself known in creation and especially through his redeeming act in history. But biblical worship doesn't empty the mind. It fills the mind. It fills the mind with the revelation of the revelation of his character, his actions, his purposes, his promises. That's why so much of our worship is through the exposition of Scripture, which fills our minds with these wonderful truths. All of these, you see, give substance to our worship. One of the best descriptions of worship I know of comes from William Temple, who's a former Archbishop of Canterbury. He writes this, The worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. It is to feed the mind with the truth of God. It is to purge the imagination by the beauty of God. It is to open the heart to the love of God. It is to devote the will to the purpose of God. Or put it more simply, worship is the offering of ourselves in love and praise for God's offering of Himself to us in love and mercy. And you know, that's why when we worship together, we are first called to worship by the words of Scripture, often the words of a song, words that point us to the character of our God. And we often begin the songs that speak of who God is and what He has done before we move to songs that express how we feel. That's because biblical worship is rational. It may be more than that, but not less. And this is very evident here. In verse 3, the psalmist says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. And much of the rest of the psalm declares why this is so. The Lord is worthy of praise in verse 8 because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. In verse 9, the Lord is worthy of praise because he is good to all. Now, this is the basic nature of God. And those of you with an ear or biblical echo, might recognize the wording of verse 8, which goes back to God's revelation of himself on Mount Sinai. It's repeated almost word for word here. There the word the Lord revealed his name, his nature to Moses. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And this became one of the most often quoted descriptions of God in the Old Testament. You see, that description of God became fulfilled, it was filled out by the coming of God's Son into 
but that God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. This is the God we worship. The God who revealed himself to his people throughout history as a gracious and compassionate God and supremely. He expresses that compassionate grace in the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. This God is worthy of our praise. The psalmist continues, the Lord is worthy of our praise because, in verse 14, he is a God who has special concern for the lowly and the downtrodden. The Lord upholds all those who fall and uplifts up all who are bowed down. Jesus captures this with him. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We serve a God that we can look to in, the, in our time of need. And we can look to Him with confidence. He will be our protector. He is our rock, our fortress, our salvation. And then He's worthy of our praise because He will be our provider. Look at verse 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. You see, the Lord Himself and the Lord alone can satisfy our deepest desires. For He created us. He created us for Himself. He knows how we were made. He knows our needs. The Lord knows our needs for significance in this life, our desire to know that our lives matter for something, that our lives have a purpose, that our days on earth are not just futile and meaningless. And it is God Himself who gives our lives eternal significance. The Lord knows our need for belonging. A desire for a, a, a community of caring, a place where we can be accepted, a family of committed relationship. And it is God alone who can draw us into His family as His sons and daughters and place us among His people in the church, the family of God, which is to be a place of belonging. And the Lord knows our need for love, that desire to know and be known, to love and be loved come out of ourselves and give of ourselves as we forgive and love, as we have been forgiven and are loved. And it is God alone who can love us with a pure, gracious love, love that nothing can destroy. That's why He is worthy of our praise. So I ask you here this morning, what, what convinces you? That our God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Can you look to how He has dealt with you in the past? Can you hear the testimonies of other believers who, who have found God to be faithful in their hardship? Can you be encouraged by the testimony of Scripture and the ways God has worked among His people through the ages? And can you look supremely? The revelation of God in Jesus Christ who died and rose again as a demonstration of his love for us. Our God is worthy of our praise. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. He's revealed his love and faithfulness in history, culminating in the revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. He is the rock on which we stand today. But there's something else here, another reason to praise. Look at verse 20, toward the end. The Lord watches all over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. 
The Lord is slow to anger, but that does not mean he is without anger. No, wickedness necessarily gives rise to his wrath. It is the necessary response of his holiness. And he will not endure evil indefinitely. One day, all wickedness will be destroyed. Now, there's one quality in the character of God that some people find hard to praise him for. I mean, some even see it as sub Christian, or at least as an offense to the modern notion of tolerance. But you see, a God who didn't care about evil, and a God who didn't do something about it, would be less than fully good without the judgment of God upon the wicked. In fact, there would be no such thing as justice. And ultimately, even the notions of good and evil themselves would become empty and meaningless. Verse 17, God is righteous in all his ways. He will set all things right. So you see, the Bible is not embarrassed by the judgment of God, as so many are in our modern world. Now, David, the psalmist, says, God is worthy of praise precisely because he is a righteous judge. He knows that there can be no heaven without a hell. For if there is to be a world of peace and justice, there can be no appeasement of the wicked. Ultimately, there can be no toleration of moral rebellion in the kingdom of God. Evil must be shown to be what it is. It must be vanquished. And only then will the goodness of God and the righteousness of God be evident to all forever. Praise the Lord. The Lord is worthy of praise. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. Extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. If we ever begin to understand the greatness of the God who created the universe as an act of his will, by his word, and sets the immutable stars in place and knows them each by name. And we begin to understand the greatness of God who, who formed the majesty of the Swiss Alps, who, who carved out the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, who paints the sunset sky in red and orange. Can you begin to understand a God who rules over the nations? Can you fathom the mystery of God becoming man to redeem sinners by God? His greatness, no one can fathom. You see, there are infinite reasons for praising such a glorious God. It's interesting, this song begins with the words of personal praise. I will exalt you, my God the King, I will praise your name forever and ever. But then notice how the psalm's eyes turn outward to the world and proclaim God's greatness to others. Verse 4 One generation commends your work to another. They tower of your mighty act. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. They tower of the power of your awesome works. All your works praise your Lord. Your people will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. And why do we do this? Verse 12. So that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. See, the praise begins as a personal act that comes from deep within our hearts. 
But praise in the Bible is also a public act. It's something we do with God's people and something we do before the world. Peter writes this in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2 9, says to the church, You are a chosen people so that you may declare the praises of Him who calls you out of darkness into His wonderful The psalmist knows God is so great that he feels he must tell others about Him. Now, C.S. Lewis again makes the observation that we as human beings almost always spontaneously praise whatever we enjoy and value. And we not only praise it, we want other people to experience and praise it also. Oh, you you just gotta see this movie I saw last week. It was fantastic. Or I read this book, it was so interesting. You really need to read it. Or wasn't it a great game yesterday? You see that? Let me tell you about it. In fact, it, it's almost as if the enjoyment we experience is not complete until we share with other people. And so it is with praising God. Anyone who experienced His majesty and His glory and His goodness and grace, they want to tell other people about it. And I use the word responsibility to describe it. The responsibility of praise. For that is what it is. And David ends this psalm on that note in verse 21. My mouth will speak and praise the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name forever and ever. It is our responsibility to help every creature see that God is worthy of our praise. Now you can say that the first and supreme purpose of the church is to worship God. For that's the one thing that we do now that will endure forever. But the church's second purpose is to make worshipers of the whole world. That's the church's mission. And as John Piper puts it, missions exist because worship doesn't. And that's why the songs are filled with this expression, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's not just an experience, an expression of my personal feeling. It is a command to others. True worshipers desire that the whole world recognize who God is and respond rightly. And if you're a true worshiper of God, it ought to grieve you. That our great and loving God, our Heavenly Father, does not receive the honor and worship that He deserves one more. In that sense, worship motivates our witness. You could say it's the supreme motivation. That everyone in the whole world may offer praise to our great God, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I don't think responsibility is exactly the right word. For it makes it sound like it's just a, a dull and dreary duty. And it can be that. Now, for the praise of God is to be our highest delight. It's to be a resounding pleasure. Verse 4, one generation commits your works to another. Verse 7, they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your might. In the opening paragraph of this classic account of his own spiritual journey, the Confessions, St. Augustine says this You are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power. Your wisdom is immeasurable. 
To praise you is the desire of man. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is resting until it rests in you. The Lord has made us for himself. He has made us such that our greatest pleasure is to be found in praising him. For in praising God, we are appreciating, loving, delighting in the worthiest object possible. And that's why the Scottish Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in heaven, you see, we will discover that these two things, glorifying God and enjoying Him, are in fact the same thing. In commanding us to glorify Him, He is inviting us to enjoy Him. And we long for that day. Until then, we will suggest we are merely tuning our the tuning of the orchestra can itself be delightful, he says, but only to those who can, in some measure, however little, anticipate the symphony to come. So we continue together with the foolish to praise God, and our services could be described as just attempts at worship. And only rarely do we really catch a glimpse of the fullness as with tuning an instrument, there may be there may be more duty among us than delight. But you see, the duty exists for the purpose of delight. Lewis uses this image. When we carry out our religious duties, we're like people digging channels in a waterless land, in order that when at last the water comes, it may find a remedy. But there are happy moments, even now, when it trickles along the dry bed, and happy are the souls to whom this happens often. You see, our praise is to be a conduit through which the delightful, joyful experience of God is to flow. And it will flow. It will flow as the Lord graciously allows it to flow. Those rivers of delight, the resounding pleasure that come through the praise of and when we come to our final home, St. Augustine's written, there we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. So the book of Psalms concludes with this theme of praise. I was reminded by one writer that in placing this verse of praise at the end, the book of Psalms is very different from our hymn book. Uh, hymn books, for those of you who aren't familiar with hymn books, hymn books often begin with songs of praise, and then they kind of peter out at the end with all sorts of songs for special occasions, even the national anthem. Not so with the Psalms. Many of the earlier Psalms emerge out of experience of conflict, of struggle, of heartache, and lament. But the final Psalms are pure praise. Maybe that order is significant. For in the Bible, you see, praise is where the people of God end up, not necessarily where they begin. Our words of praise, whether spoken or sung, they are in a sense words of hope. 
They're words of aspiration. They're words that express what we wish reflected the depth of our heart. But right now, we're not quite there yet. We're still tuning up. And God will use the experiences of life to sharpen our praising skills. But the glorious symphony is ready to come. And every once in a while, in this part, you might just hear a faint echo of those heavenly strains. But for now, we sometimes struggle. I struggle with praise. I praise the best part. If you find it hard to praise God, please don't blame it on the style of worship. There is no one style of worship that provides the proper means of praise. I've seen God's people praise in an Anglican service in England that praise God in quiet reverence, kneeling in worship. And I've seen God's people meeting under a tree in South Sudan, praising God in exuberant song and dance. So don't think, if only we could have one of those professional praise bands with stage lights and smoke machines, then you could really worship. Or if only we had those vibrant praise songs that come from Africa that brought you to dance, then you could really enjoy praising God. Or for some of you, if only we had a proper pipe organ in a magnificent cathedral, then you could, could truly When we fail to worship God, the fault is not in our style of music or our physical environment. The fault is within ourselves. You see, worship is a moral and spiritual enterprise. It is our sin that blinds us to the majesty of God. That's what, that's what causes His light to be hidden from our eyes. And it's when we are purged from sin that we will praise God as we want. Jesus says, it is the pure in heart who will see God. And when our hearts are pure, then we can be filled with the pleasure of praise. So if you find worship and praise difficult, if you wish you could be, uh, have more enjoyment in praising God, don't look at some musical style or some type of building or some worship technique to solve your problem. And I would say this. Don't look within yourself either. If you want to become a better worshiper, if you want to find pleasure in praise, I urge you to look outside yourself to Christ. Look to the earthly ministry of Christ. See his
For as you look to him in faith, he will make your feeble and faltering efforts to praise acceptable to God. And he will present them to the Father as a fragrant offering, pleasing to him. And one day your praise will rise before the throne of glory with such passion and such purity and in such unadulterated passion that you will think you are in heaven. Renewed and full of love, divine, perfect, and right, and pure, and good. 